This episode is brought to you by Hayward Pool Products. On this edition of the Ask the Masters podcast, we're talking hydraulics and pumps with SWD Masters David Penton and David Peterson. Episode 29, Properly Sizing Hydraulics for Safety and Efficiency. Stay tuned for this dynamic episode. Hello and welcome to the Ask the Masters podcast. This podcast is dedicated to discussions about the design and construction of water shapes. The hosts of the show are all certified SWD masters who represent the leading builders and designers within the water shaping industry today. Welcome into the show. Uh, I'm your host today, Dave from Fluid Dynamics Pool and Spa. In studio today, we have Dave Peterson, SWD master and also the owner of Watershape Consulting, one of the premier uh, hydraulic engineers within the pool industry. And uh, today we're going to set out about talking about hydraulics. Uh, so just a quick introduction. Most people know who you are, but just a quick introduction uh, for those who might not know who you are. Yeah, my name's Dave. I'm uh, down here in Southern California in, in Solana Beach and I uh, have a design and engineering firm that focuses on pools, spas, and water features, uh, structural engineering, and a lot of mechanical design. And I've been doing uh, water stuff like this since 1994. So. A lot of experience, I think. Yep, and you didn't start out in the pool industry. You started out in, in municipal water is what you studied? And uh, No, actually it was really more like uh, what we called life support systems for okay. uh, aquatic projects like uh, marine mammal exhibits and aquariums okay. for clients like SeaWorld and the Monterey Bay Aquarium, the Shedd Aquarium. Cool, but most of your focus now is uh, residential and commercial high-end construction throughout the world, really, not just even here in Southern California. You're doing stuff in Dubai and all over the place. Right. Yep. So today, uh, really wanted to just have a conversation all around hydraulics as, a, uh, as it uh, relates to swimming pools, um, specifically uh, residential construction, commercial construction, a lot of overlap there, uh, but just really kind of get into some of the, the, the basics of it. Uh, a lot of this is included in our hydraulics classes that Genesis offers, uh, and so wanted to just kind of wet the whistle for everybody, um, kind of uh, get a little bit of the theory behind. Um, why uh, the Genesis organization has some of the limits that we placed on our builders and just really understand um, uh, some of the design parameters, uh, define some of the terms, um, you know, feet per second, velocity, um, total dynamic head, uh, and just kind of kind of open everybody's world. Uh, so for a lot of you, this is going to be kind of just review um, information, uh, but we also know that there's quite a few people out there that are not necessarily uh, hydraulic experts like uh, like Dave is, uh, and just kind of really um, just give a primer. Um, so let's start off with um, just kind of a general, um, what are some of the terms? Uh, TDH, um, uh, velocity, some of those, and, and how they relate to swimming pool plumbing and, and the hydraulics in general. Yeah, well, it really starts with the, the flow of water going through a pipe. Uh, there's, there's friction between those two things, and friction results in a pressure drop in that fluid, and you have to overcome that with your pumps. So the more friction you have, the higher the head pressure in the pump, and that is energy that you pay for every time you run that pump. So ideally, you want to minimize the friction, and to do that, you need to size the pipes appropriately for the expected flow rate. So if I was going to move 65 gallons per minute, just for example, then uh, I know that based on my rule of thumb, I would want a two and a half inch diameter suction and I could get away with a two inch on the return side, but the, the suction side's a little more critical. So it, it kind of, you know, knowing the flow rates kind of gives me a guideline for where to start sizing pipes and then we can get into more advanced analysis to fine tune it. So um, for those that haven't taken the class, how do you even determine the flow rate needed for a pool? Uh, you know, it, it, we're looking at a pool and, and I know a lot of people just wing it and go, ah, you know, I think a two inch pipe will be here, but it's actually pretty darn simple. Uh, you know, I know I do it on every one of the jobs that we bid. Uh, really in three to four minutes, you can calculate out the flow rate required and, and it's just real simple arithmetic. Can you walk us through those calculations a little bit? Yeah, it's really a, a simple thing. We call it turnover, and turnover is really uh, a measure of time, and, and it's sort of a theoretical amount of time that it takes to turn over that entire volume of water through the 
the filtration system. So if you had a, a 20,000 gallon pool and you wanted to turn it over in six hours, that might be somewhere around 65 GPM. I'm just making that up, but that may not be the exact number. But you, you would determine the volume of, of that vessel. You could take the surface area times the average depth, multiply it by 7.48 if your measurements were in feet, and you would have gallons. And then if you knew that you wanted a six-hour turnover, you divide by 360 minutes, and you'd get gallons per minute. And then you could go to the, the pump curves and start looking for pumps that had you know, that many gallons per minute at the expected TDH. Sure. Uh, and, and really, um, what is the code? Because the code is very specific about uh, things like turnover rate, and it's a lot more in the commercial market. Uh, but I know um, uh, within Genesis, um, you know, we've really kind of taken the stance of uh, our max turnover rate is going to be six hours, uh, so 360 minutes. But that's not always the case uh, all the way around. You know, when we're des designing a standalone spa, we design it for a 30-minute turnover. Uh, and, and YMCAs have different, so commercial has a little bit more. Uh, but why have we landed upon uh, six-hour turnover? Well, six hours was traditionally the turnover rate for a standard commercial swimming pool. Now, we do have different levels now. The Model Aquatic Health Code has defined a series of different target points depending on the expected occupancy of the pool and environmental conditions and things. And so six hours historically was, was our target actually for residential work as well. And really what, it, what that's doing is it's giving the, the whole system a sort of a proportionate size relative to the volume. It sort of sizes up all of the plumbing and everything so that you could, if you needed to, you could filter that whole thing in six hours. Now that doesn't mean we always run it six hours. You may run it at that flow rate but need to run it more hours, you may be able to run it less hours. I don't run my own pool six hours, but it's a small pool and not a lot of dirt gets in it. And uh, so I, I can run it at that flow rate, but for only like four hours a day and the pool's fine. Uh, now during the summertime, if the kids were over with the soccer team all jumping in there, then yeah, I probably need to run it many more hours to, to keep up. But it just gives us a, a guideline. So six hours is a residential swimming pool target for us. Um, 30 minutes is a good target for a residential spa. If it was a commercial project, 30 would probably be the high end. I actually start looking at 25 and even 20 minutes, sometimes even 15 if it was a heavily loaded at the you know, YMCA yeah. kind of spa where uh, you know, you're, you're going to have a lot of people in there. You need something that keeps up with that. So we do have other rules. YMCA, for example, has their own natatorium guidelines that would demand mm. at least a four-hour turnover uh, maximum. So for a swimming pool. So there's j different rules that come into play. Yeah, so as we start with that, so as I'm working through my calculations to try and figure out, so I work through um, the, the very beginning, I figure out what my flow rate is. And so say I need 75 gallons per minute. Um, then how then do we design the, uh, the plumbing to fit into that? And, and can you define kind of how, we, how, how that equates and, and defines what size the pipe is? And then the very last thing um, is, is figuring out what size pump. Uh, so talk a little bit about uh, codes and, and our positions and everything on sizing the plumbing. Yeah. Well, the codes have changed over the years. And... Um but I, I still actually go by some of the older codes, not real old codes, but uh, there were some rules in place about the maximum speed on the suction side of a pump, especially as it pertains to suction outlets, and that limit was six feet per second. I still use that as our own code limit on the suction side. And if you look outside of the pool industry, you'll find language about a, a maximum velocity on the discharge side of the pump of eight feet per second. So slower getting up to the pump, which is important because we need to reduce the, the friction uh, to make sure that we're getting enough water to the pump so we're not starving it. After the pump, we can go a little faster with the speed on the discharge side, so you know, up to 8 feet per second. I still see some stuff in the pool industry at 10 feet per second, which is a mistake in my opinion. Um, so we have those, those code limits, and we, we really don't want to exceed that. As I always say, that's the maximum legally defensible speed that you can go at. You can go to six feet on the suction side and eight feet on the discharge side 
and you'll stay out of trouble in a, within a jury's you know purview of the of the project. That doesn't mean that's where we design for though, because if you design for that speed, by the time you get your plumbing all set up and your pump selected and everything else, you might actually exceed it a little bit. And if you exceed it just a little bit, you have no legal defense for that. Right. If the code says six and you're at 6.01, <laughs> you're at more than six and a jury may not understand that, you know, that's a, within a rounding error. They might just say, nope, you were above the speed limit. Uh, you know, that injury or whatever it was is your fault. So, so we actually back off of those uh, code limits and we have what we call our design velocities. And it's actually worked out really well to simply take one and a half feet per second off of the suction and discharge velocities and sort of use that as our design code. So instead of six feet on the suction side, we'd go four and a half feet per second, maximum velocity. After the pump, on the discharge side, a maximum speed of six and a half instead of eight. And uh, those are great targets. I've done a thousand pools that way. I've never had a hydraulic issue where we had, you know, high flow rates. In fact, we've even had situations where something was plumbed that way and for other reasons they wanted to speed things up. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, a pool where the, it was a, a perimeter uh, edge uh, made of granite and there was a, a flow rate that we calculated out for that. It was a really wide submerged stone detail. And the owners felt like it was too wide of a section and it was a, a stepping area and it was too slippery. And they asked the builder, you know, what could we do? Well, he drained the pool down a little bit and they came out and flamed it. Oh boy, yeah. And once they uh, put that, that sort of leather finish on everything, the undulations really required more water to, to keep it all wet. So when they started the pumps back up, same flow rate, nothing hydraulically had changed except that as the water is reaching over that stone it's filling in the valleys in that that leather finish and it's not able to wet the the, the crowns in the stone and so you ended up with a lot of dry spots everywhere and of course it was panic time uh oh you know we just spent all this money flaming the stone and now there's not enough flow well fortunately uh, they could change out the pump and get more water to flow over and still not exceed the maximum speed limit because we had a little bit of a cushion there. Quick word from our partner, Hayward. Welcome to Ask the Masters podcast. I am Ryan Oaks with Clearwater Construction Group based out of North Carolina. Uh, I'm an SWD master and I'm here today to uh, speak with Scott Petty with um, Hayward Pool Products. Scott, um, welcome. Uh, welcome to Ask the Masters. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do at Hayward? Yes, thanks for having me. So uh, again, my name is Scott Petty, uh, product manager for pumps with Hayward Pool Products, uh, based also in North Carolina. Uh, and as product manager, really just, uh, I like to describe as kind of the conduit for all things pump. So I'll work with our sales team and, and customers, and then our engineering and operations team, just to make sure we have the right product going forward. Um, uh, to address the needs of at least what's within the pool industry, a uh, fairly rapid changing uh, product category with uh, the growth of variable speed pumps and new uh, energy efficiency regulations. Cool. Um, speaking of pumps, so pumps are your specialty then, I presume, right? That's my primary category. That's that's it. That's your category. Cool. Yes. Well, uh, let, let's start with that, man. Okay. Um, we noticed the new uh, the TriStar 950s seem to have gotten a lot quieter. Um, can you tell me about that? Is that due to a uh, changing magnets or? Um... Yeah, so we uh, we have a, you know, a, 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 I'll call it a portfolio variable speed pumps, and the the TriStar VS 950 is uh, uh, really the the flagship, the largest, and uh, we have uh, updated uh, the what we call the motor drive what makes it a variable speed pump. Um, and uh, one of the benefits of that is it is uh, notably quieter uh, than its predecessor. And uh, uh, you know, the variable speed pumps are quiet at low speed, but you still have to run them at high speed. So we were able to, to uh, uh, deliver uh, uh, even improved benefits, even at the, 
the higher speed. Well, it's certainly notable, um, and we appreciate that. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, you know, people can, you know, it, it, with pumps, you know, we talk about energy efficiency and all the, the technical details, but at the end of the day, uh, if you can hear a pump, that's that's generally not a, a good thing. So anything we can do to uh, improve that is, is usually well-received. Well, that's the goal, right? I mean, we're building environments that are supposed to be tranquil and pleasant, and the last thing we want to hear is a pump. Uh, running so it's um it's it's great uh we feel like it's part sound is an uh an important part of the uh component of the space the de the design space it's not just a body of water to swim in it's uh it is supposed to be peaceful so it's nice to have the uh the equipment set getting quieter it at least when it's nearby right well one of the things we've noticed um so you've got the new hcp line out um which yes. i think is is great we're using it on for example even in a residential environment i know that's listed as a commercial uh product uh within your product line but for a spa that's perfect you know we're using you know typically a spa suction sides four inches and returns three inches and you yeah. know doing proper hydraulics on a spa is really important and so it's nice to be able to come to a pump that has a three inch inlet instead of a two or a two and a half even you know and it's one less uh restriction coming into the uh, system um did you guys think about that going into that or is it just for the higher gpm you decided hey we're going to bump up uh, inlet sizes and create a variable speed that gives us that can you expand on that how you guys brought that product line out Absolutely. So, um, you know, we our, our bread and butter and focus has been in the residential market. Um, but as we've expanded in the commercial market, uh, we recognize there's really, um, uh, for lack of a better term, just an, an in-between uh, larger residential or smaller commercial. And then just the, the reality that in many cases, those are just terminology. The pools themselves can be fairly similar. Um, but at the end of the day, if you need more flow for commercial or for a spa, uh, uh, having larger inlets, outlets, just more horsepower and flow uh, is uh, is often required. So that's where our HCP 3000 really kind of fits that in between um, when you need a little bit more uh, uh, than, say, a typical residential pump might uh, offer. Well, as, as you may well know, you know, we get into, we're, we're crossing lines, I think, between residential and commercial with some of the high-end pools that are being built in this country you know we're seeing pools that are you know for all intents and purposes they're commercial pools in a residential environment if exactly you, you know and exactly. so we're 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 having the need for more water demand um but more control you know the the control that a residential system has so we would certainly love to see that go toward a uh uh fully fully automated system um we certainly appreciate being able to control water chemistry and um that's been you know being able to monitor for clients has been uh a big plus for us you know to help walk clients through uh problem solving and um looking in with the um the uh h l chem uh, mm -hmm. monitoring system you know that's that's great um it's yeah exactly so our, I mean, our clients the, find it very helpful as you know the pump side uh which again i'm, I'm bias toward but you know variable speed pumps in the growth there but uh, from a from a uh, goes along with that are the the growth of controls like you mentioned i mean at the end of the day we all like to control things or a phone or whatnot or then as a professional like you said being able to monitor pools so having that uh connectivity is uh is only going to continue to grow going forward you guys have taken some really big steps forward um is that uh is, is there a big push there at Hayward Corporate to 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 move the 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 tech side of things forward? Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I mean it, it's it's recognized at that the at the highest levels and, and you know, as a product manager, we're 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 looking at what do we need to do going forward to to deliver the product that the market needs and. Uh, uh, technology. I mean, let's face it. We all in our day-to-day -day lives. We, we all have our phones, and 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 technology is such an important part. Uh, like I like I mentioned, we wanted the backyard to really catch up to that. So, uh, technology is is uh, uh, 
uh, particular emphasis for us, along with the, the fundamentals, uh, you know, the reliability and uh, installation. The, we still got to do the blocking and tackling, but uh, we, we want to deliver the uh, advanced features that we have and we'll continue to do with things like, uh, like we talked about, OmniLogic and dimmable lights, et cetera. So it, it's absolutely a focus for us now and, and uh, going forward. Reliability something that apparently you guys took from your pumps into your lights. I know that over the years we've we've really struggled with lighting reliability and the Hayward lights so far for us are rock star. I mean, we haven't had any problems. We're using them in and out of the water. <laughs> We're doing all sorts of stuff with them and they're they're amazing. Excellent. Well, good. That's that's yeah. great to hear. It's it's a focus for us across all product lines and uh, uh, lights. Like I say, you can do things now, taking them out and coordinating with your backyard. Um, so uh, uh, you know, even though I'm the pump guy, quote unquote, uh, it's it's common across my my counterparts with pumps and heaters and controls. Uh, it, it's uh, at the end of the day, it goes back to our earlier comment. We want to make the backyard uh, seamless for the homeowner so that they can enjoy the pool and uh, not think about equipment. Awesome. Well, we appreciate it. Um, we're enjoying it. Uh, I know we've been uh, specifying a lot of Hayward and uh, using it as well in our own projects. And uh, it's been a, been a great, uh, great product line for us. Well, we certainly appreciate it. Look forward to uh, where we can go uh, in the future. Yes. Awesome. All right, Scott, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Okay, thanks. Bye. Let's talk about VGB a little bit. Uh, and for those not familiar with that, that's the Virginia Graham Baker Act, which really talks about suction entrapment. Uh, and, and the reality is, is that as an industry, we didn't do a very good job promoting hydraulics properly. And, and so many pools, even to this day, I think it's gotten a lot better, but even to this day, there's so many pools that are designed with very poor hydraulics that they become dangerous. Um, and you know, suction velocities at 10 and 11 and 12, you know, we've seen those uh, on expert witness jobs where the suction velocities are so high and they become potentially deadly. Uh, and so that's how the Virginia Graham Baker law came into effect is that somebody actually died on a pool that was, that, that was not calculated out properly. So uh, fill in some of the blanks there uh, that I'm not explaining well and, and why it's very important to, to pay attention to all of this. Yeah, well, it really starts with the the interface between the, the swimming vessel and the plumbing. There's got to be something there to prevent, you know, a limb or your hair or a finger or jewelry. You know, there, there's things that can get pulled in. And, and if, you know, if it holds your head underwater because your hair got tangled up, then you're going to drown. And that's, you know, one of the, the deadly parts of it. Even if it's not that, it could be evisceration or some other hazard. Um, Which is how VGB came about, you know, that, that story that, that, that kind of brought it about is really a pretty heartbreaking story. Uh, right. Yeah, and so, so, you know, we have these, these covers and, you know, sometimes it's a custom cover, but 99% of them are store-bought, you know, uh, injection-molded plastic fittings that are screwed to the, the surface of the vessel on a ring or something like that. So you've got the plumbing below it in some kind of a sump and the water is basically getting pulled in through, you know, a grill or a slot or, or something that, that's keeping those limbs from getting into the plumbing system. And we have to keep those velocities low. You know, hair entrapment is a great example of, you know, if you've got a lot of turbulence going on underneath the grill and your hair sort of flows in and the turbulence knots up the hair, then you, you can't get your head off. But if everything was just very calm under there, if your hair got pulled in and you start lifting your head, your hair should just naturally flow right out. So there's tests for this. They literally take the covers in a, a test pool and they take a fictitious, you know, false head of hair, <laughs> hold it on the drain cover, and, and we have these tests and, you know, a vacuum hold down force, uh, you know, that you can't hold, hold somebody down with more than 15 pounds of force, which um, 
really originates from the uh, the, the door hardware industry, where mm. you know a, a child exiting a burning building needs to be able to hit a panic bar and exit that door with no more than 15 pounds of force. So if that's sort of a logical maximum force, it makes sense that pushing yourself off the floor with no more than 15 pounds of force would be uh, a wise uh, target as well. So. Uh, so now you're you're looking at the interface between the you know the velocity of of the pipe and the flow of water into the that suction outlet and the relationship of that to the the speed of the water as it's going into the grill and you're just trying to keep everything within the the tested parameters of the covers and uh, and and it's not just the covers you could have a a great cover rated for 200 gpm but if you've got a pipe that's running at too high a velocity and it's right underneath the cover over in one corner, you're going to have a higher velocity at that one point. Mm. So you could still defeat the intended safety purpose of that cover by doing the plumbing wrong. And if there was only one suction outlet as opposed to two, where each one can handle 100% of the flow, if you only had one cover, it's not going to really matter how much flow the cover could handle. If you lay on it and that pump is pulling with all of its might, you're you're not going to get off there very easily. So uh, it's uh, the mechanical design of the system where you've got, you know, a T splitting to, you know, two, three, four suction outlets is very important. Yeah, and, and the other thing too, uh, you know, this relates back to pipe sizing very much. Um, uh, this is one of my personal pet peeves. I really feel like the industry still, even since VGB uh, has been implemented, I feel like the industry really drops the ball on this a lot. And, um, you know, and you can't really place the onus on building inspectors because, uh, you know, oftentimes when they come out or health inspectors, they, they can't see. All they see is a cover in place that is a, a certified cover. Um, and so they can't actually see underneath there. They don't know whether the pipe spacing is wrong. So, um, you know, I think so many people don't even really understand that it's not just the cover. You have to have the proper depth of the sump. Uh, but even at that, you know, if you have, um, you know, if you have a, a, a pipe that is way too small, say you're pulling 12 feet per second through a, a two-inch line sitting under a VGB-rated cover, but it's only sitting a half inch below, you touched on it a little bit, um, that's still a very dangerous situation, even though you know, at the surface, it looks like a safe situation. So, right. um, you know, designing the hydraulics is, is, is as critical an element as, you know, making sure that you have the right hardware in the pool. Yep. And one thing I'm happy to see is actually cities are starting to look at this. Yeah. They used to never pay attention to the hydraulics. You know, in fact, a lot of cities, you would just need a, a standard structural plan, a site plan stapled together, and you would take that in and get your permit. And now, you know, cities are asking for electrical information, you know, at least some kind of plumbing schematic or specifications for the covers and the pumps and even the piping because of energy codes and, and safety issues. So they're requiring a, a minimal amount of information so at least they can make a, a, you know, a determination as to whether it would be safe or not. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really complicated things in the last decade is the advent of VFD pumps and variable speed and all of that. Um, uh, let's chat a little bit about, um, you know, uh, when when Pentair came out with their first one. I only mention them because they're, they're kind of the innovator of this whole technology. When they came out with the first pump uh, for a residential marketplace, um, it was a dedicated three horsepower pump. Um, much larger than most swimming pools need. Uh, and so um, I think that somewhat complicates the entire hydraulic calculations because you may have a 4,000 gallon pool and you know you want to put on uh, you know uh, pick a manufacturer's you know uh, full rate pump. Now in the last number of years it's really gotten simplified uh, and, and well not simplified but it's gotten better in that different manufacturers are offering different max horsepower pumps mm -hmm. uh, but still I walk onto sites all the time and see three horsepower variable speed pumps on two inch plumbing. The two inch plumbing may be appropriate for that pool but you have the potential for danger there um, because that pump can be you know can no matter what you set it up as a builder somebody can come in and ramp that speed up and, and create a, a, a potentially harmful situation. Yeah I remember when those pumps first came out the, the first time someone 
you know, pitched it to me. He came into the office, you know, was a rep and uh, pitched the, the idea of the variable speed. Well, I had already been doing variable speed for a long it's time. It's been in commercial in, for a yeah, long time. In, in other, other industries. But, you know, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, oh, this is great, but, you know, I need something other than just a three horsepower. And they kind of, you know, at the time, they were thinking, no, we're going to have one SKU, and we're just going to sell a b- bazillion of them, and it won't matter that uh, it's too big on some jobs because they're going to be able to keep the price reasonable because of the volume. Well, yeah, the problem is, is that you have to start thinking about the plumbing. You know, to make the pipes safe, you have to size the pipes appropriately for the max speed of the pump because somebody could goof up the plumbing on the pump. Mm-hmm. I mean, my own son goes in and changes the speed. You know, if the filter's like really dirty and he's trying to heat the, the, the spa up or something, he's like, ah, dad, you, you didn't clean the filter this month. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, well, I'll just speed the pump up. Well, what if he does something silly and, you know, goes all and, the way up. and goes all the way up and we didn't intend that? Well, the plumbing needs to be sized for the maximum speed that that could happen. What if, what if the uh, service guy took the cartridge out and didn't put one back in? Maybe there was a hole torn in it. And he, he decided, well, I'm just going to put the lid on. I'll come back tomorrow with a new cartridge. And we didn't know about that. All of a sudden, the pump is running at max speed. There's no filter at all. So we just dropped the head pressure by you know 20 feet or something. And all of a sudden... We're, we're flowing a lot more gallons per minute than we had intended. Now, you may have a, a, a dangerous situation at the suction outlets that you didn't have when the cartridge was in there, even with a hole in the cartridge. So, uh, and, and so the goal is that uh, if you have a split pair of suction outlets, the plumbing that connects from those outlets to the T, including the T itself, should be sized for the maximum flow rate of the pump. So if I was using my four and a half foot per second rule and I was trying to move 120 GPM, that needs a four inch pipe. I need mm-hmm. at least four inch going over to that point. Now, once I get to that point, if I didn't need four inch going all the way back, I could push down to three inch or whatever and go all the way back, but at least up to that point, because that's the point where it's a point of if, danger. Yeah, if you're laying down on one of them and you have that potential hold down force, that hold down force is a, a really a factor of how much head loss there is going to the other outlet and what the open area is of it. So if I have very little head loss because the, the pipe is sized for four and a half foot per second design flow rate, then my hold down force is negligible and I'll be able to push off with less than 15 pounds per foot easily. If that plumbing is very small and I have a high head loss on that one side, now all of a sudden there, there is really vacuum pressure holding you down and you may not get off even if there is split suction outlets. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's very important to have that plumbing uh, coordinated with the maximum size of the pipe, at least to the T. After that, it's not as important. Yeah, and, and we're not talking that much. Uh, you know, I mean, you're talking five total feet of pipe and, you know, two 90s and a T. Right. Uh, so at the end of the day, I mean, we started doing that, oh gosh, probably 10 years ago, just after the, the, uh, the Pentair pump came out on the market. We've started building all of our pools like that. And it's just, um, uh, I remember one time, uh, one of the first times we had implemented that, um, I actually needed to drain a spa uh, to do a little bit of polishing. And um, I took the suction cover off because I needed to get all of the water down. And I remember having the pump running at full speed and I stuck my fist down inside that line and it was split. And there was very little suction there and that was with a three horsepower running at full speed. So at that point, I was sold on the entire concept and, and ever since then, um, all of our outlets, even if we, you know, bush down, yeah, to a two and a half or, or a three inch line going back to the pump, at least right there um, for the safety aspect of, of the bathers, um, that interface within the pool is really critical and, and it doesn't add that much expense right there. Right. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, kind of as you are designing, say, like a vanishing edge pool um, and uh, uh, or let's take a like a perimeter overflow. Um, You know, a lot of infinity edge detailing is kind of um, really taking over the marketplace, especially, you know, high end contemporary. Um, We're seeing a lot of mirror finishes in that. Um, You know, a lot of times uh, you'll see in design awards or that um, you'll see the little rippling of the surface of the water uh, and and. Uh, as a hydraulic designer and engineer, 
how do we get away from that? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it ruins the effect so much. You don't want to have to have the client be able to keep their pump off if they're looking for that effect. Right. Well, it's, uh, part of it comes down to low line velocities again. It's typically not the water getting pulled out. It can be. If, if the line velocity is really high, you actually have that potential of vortexing air in there. So then you, you start focusing on anti-vortex covers, but I've even seen anti-vortex covers vortex air in five feet of water. Yeah, so there was it, one on Facebook the other day that I just saw on a different page uh, that, that, yeah, it must have been four and a half feet of water and it was a circular pool and they were getting a vortex that was dropping down every bit of two feet. And, um, you know, everybody was commenting about the flow and I'm like, no, that's a bit scary right there. That's, yeah. you know, what's happening right at the cover, so. Right. But usually with, with these vanishing edges, it's usually not the suction right. side. It's usually the, the lines returning into the pool. And I, when we first started doing them, I think we you know, were using a lot of the floor returns. And sometimes we still do that, especially bigger pools where we just need to get water out into the center of the volume. We, we've actually kind of gotten away from that and, and we've really just gone to low wall returns for many of these edges not always but a lot of them just because when I look at the floor I'm I'm trying to eliminate all of the fittings now if if there was an owner that said you know I want a swim lane down there then I might actually think well okay why don't we use the floor returns as your markers you know I, I'll kinda I'll color match them but they're, you're, they're still going to be visible. Yeah, you got It'll be on. sort of, a, you know, when you're swimming, you'll be able to see where the center line of the pool is, but it won't jump out at you like a big tiled, you know, commercial looking pool. Uh, so maybe I would use them in that case or obviously big, you know, wide pools where we just need to get water out there. But if I can just put like on my own pool, just, you know, a series of little wall returns down low, that's fine. It's all I need to, you know, release the water in. And as that water comes in, if, if it's coming out of the return inlets slow, it's not going to ripple the surface. And if I can keep that rippling from happening, then everything will be calm. And I love having in a spa, because even, you know, I always say the poor man's uh, vanishing edge. You know, maybe mm. you can't afford a vanishing edge, but a perimeter overflow spa isn't right. that crazy expensive. It's really just some detailing and um, you know, maybe moving it out into the pool a little bit and allowing the water flow over. Well, we want that mirror surface on there. So having deep heated returns into something like a toe kick may hide that and uh, hide the returns visually, but also help calm the water down at the foot well so that everything's just rising up to the surface evenly and flowing out. You're not even seeing those little lines that you sometimes get when, they're, when you know there's movement in the water. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know we've, uh, the, the math that I use uh, on my pools is we, we try and keep each of those penetrations at 10 gallons per minute uh, on a one inch penetration. Um, you know, we've even, um, you know, aesthetics to me uh, with my clientele, aesthetics are just as important as functionality. As a matter of fact, a lot of times much more important than the overall functionality. Um, and so um, I really, uh, we do a lot of where um, we will match the pipe color to the actual finish of the pool. Um, you know, we use light gray, um, uh, we special order black, uh, special order dark gray. Um, there is blue PVC out there, but I don't, it doesn't ever really match properly. We use mm -hmm. a lot of light gray. Um, and rather than putting eyeballs on there, because that, that has a much bigger interface, I'll just flush cut those, um, uh, those fittings right at the pool, and they go away, especially if you put them right down near the floor-to-wall interface, real close to the floor. Mm -hmm. We generally go about nine inches off of the floor. Um, you can really hide the whole functionality of it, and... Um, you know, for the architects and, and uh, designers out there, that becomes a real important interface that really, um, you know, when they, when they walk into a project and they're not looking at, you know, four wiffle ball shaped drain covers on the bottom, you know, a, a black pool with white wiffle ball drain covers on the bottom of it, um, you know, they really notice it. That's, that's always the design aesthetic that I kind of take into mind as we're looking at everything is that if you can see my stuff, I've probably made a mistake. Uh, and so really, uh, in, in, in reality, it just takes a little bit of forethought. It's not, 
Um, yeah, when we order special uh, order the black pipe, it's a little bit more expensive, but mm -hmm. um, but the reality is, is I need to know the finished colors way before we've ever shot the pool. Uh, right. And so you do have to have a little bit of pre-planning on it. Um, but at the end of the day, the job is so much more aesthetically pleasing. Um, and I know we work with your office quite a bit on custom drain covers. Um, you know, explain a little bit about that, how you can hide, you know, like the toe kick, you, you alluded to it earlier. Explain a little bit about that, a little bit about some of our, our custom stainless covers that we design and, um, you know, some of the benefits, uh, why we do that. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll address the, uh, the, the custom stainless ones first, because that's really a pretty simple idea, you know, as a, as a one-off product rather than having a... Um, you know, a plastic cover that's white or something like that. We might have a just a, a stainless steel piece that's it's custom for that job. We create shop drawings for it, and it's a like a slot that the water is either p being pulled out of. Sometimes they're used as return inlets, mm -hmm. and the water's coming through that slot, and we're just maintaining a you know a three eighths inch wide opening so that no one can get their fingers in there. So it's smaller than the half inch you know finger simulation that they would use for a cover. And we have some rules about how fast the water can go through that, you know, no more than one and a half foot per second. So we're slowing it down even more just, just through that cover. And uh, so we can do calculations and then engineer a, a custom solution for that. And every cover is, is different mm -hmm. and we can justify it mathematically. Um, and then the toe kick idea was actually something that uh, we came up with uh, I mean, it might, it's probably been nine years now. I mean, it was a long time ago. And the first ones we did, I, I built a couple myself before I even promoted the idea in someone else's drawings because mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing something really stupid. I thought if I'm going to make a mistake, I could fix Do it, it my myself and <laughs> no one will know about my stupidity, you know? So, uh, yeah, explain that, what it is, you know, because I mean, we know what it is, but yeah, right. really explain to to maybe an architect out there that's never even heard the term. So what, yeah, what is so, it? Yeah, um, so the idea was it was a way to hide fittings inside of a spa was really where it started. In fact, the first project was uh, in Escondido, a uh, big house up in the hill and, and uh, the owner, the spa is actually in his front yard. Sounds oh. a little interesting. He eventually wanted to do a big pool and spa in the backyard, but... He had these fantastic boulders, just huge rocks. I mean, they, you know, 10 feet tall. And, and they were, there was this area, you couldn't move these. They were natural, they were there forever, but there was this outcropping and he had a way from his master bedroom to have access to this area in such a way that as you're sitting in the spa, you actually had a couple of little view vistas. But for the most part, you had privacy and there was no mm. one around that could really see it, but he wanted to do a, just a spa there. And I thought, well, the first thing is, why don't I do a perimeter overflow and wrap it all in tile and I'll have it overflow into just a little pond. So the pond will actually reach out to these rocks and it'll look like kind of a piece natural. of art mm. sitting in, in this natural pond. And uh, we actually fed water into the pond uh, down one of the rocks as mm. a kind of a little spillway thing. So that, that part was fun. But I had also was in my mind, I wanted to test this idea of this toe kick. And so the idea is that down at the footwell in the spa, rather than seeing a bunch of big white covers, which I can't stand because they're ugly and they stick up from the ground, so I'm always kicking them and they're just Stubbing uncomfortable. Yeah, and when you got the bubbles on, you, you know, you can't see what's going on and you're, Glass of you know, wine. you had a you know, beer. We should probably uh, have, a, have, a, have a sip That's of right. our beer, by the way. <laughs> and and you're, you're just stumbling around these spas, you know. So um, I thought, well, what if I, I took a channel drain and I, and I put that, you know, on, the, on the, the, the face of the wall and I got it off the floor and I just put the channel drain there. So that was sort of my first concept. It, you know, I'd like to kind of get everything off the floor and kind of hide it a little bit better. And maybe if it's color matched and it's tucked down below, it'll be, you know, a little bit hidden. So I'm making drawings, and as I'm making that, that first iteration in section view, I thought, you know, this would be even better if I pushed it back a little bit. And really that idea came out of my kitchen because I'm standing in the kitchen 
realizing that all of the cabinets in your kitchen too have that toe kick. And it makes sense because our toes are sticking out further than our legs. So if you want to stand right up to the counter as you're uh, you know, cutting an apple, you need a place for your toes to go. Mm-hmm. So architects figured this out a long time ago with kitchen cabinetry and bathroom cabinetry. And uh, I thought, well, it's the same idea. It's the, it's the kitchen cabinet toe kick. I'm just going to recess the, the, rather than having that, that spa bench drop straight down, I'm going to recess that back a little bit. Just the bottom six inches. Yeah, bottom six inches, and I'll go back six inches in depth. And, you know, I'll just conceptually, I'll see where, where that ends up. And I'll set the drains. And we thought, you know, channel drains, that was another thing, is we didn't have channel drains 10 years ago, right? right? So the advent of the channel drains really made this really possible. For First, they handle a lot of flow. So, and they've got three ports, which I love, because I can connect, I, I still use two drains, and I put them on opposite sides of the spa. This first one happened to be a square, by the way, so it made it easy. But two drains, I come out of the center port, tee those together, and that goes back to the filtration system. Okay. That's the heated returns, basically. Then I take the two outside ports, tee those together on each side. So I really got four ports coming together, and those are all teeing together to a four-inch line going back to the jet pump. And that's running at about 120, 125 GPM. The filtration system's running at like 40 GPM or something like that. Enough to run the heater. In the and jet. the covers handle like 200, so I'm not even close to that. And Plus, it, you and, have a, and a there's split two drain system. And there's, there's two, yeah. right. So... You know, it was inherently safe. And because the toe kick went all the way around, there was no way to seal off on that. Now, if I just took the toe kick and, or just took the drain and just recessed that back, maybe I didn't like the look of the cover. If I just recessed the cover back, that wouldn't solve the problem. That actually creates a new problem, which is that now it's, it's, you've just created a sump within a sump, and right. that outer ring is really like an uncovered sump. That's actually very dangerous. Don't, you don't want to do that. But the toe kick, because it extends out beyond and actually goes all the way around, I don't even think there is a shape of anybody's body that could fit Slide in there out. and seal that off. It's inherently safe from, from a body entrapment standpoint. And, of course, we've, uh, the velocities are low, so you know, hair entrapment, finger entrapment, uh, you know, limb, uh, jewelry, you know, anything else. It just, it just can't, it, it can't have a problem, you know? Yeah. And, and so after that first one, then we started getting a little trickier with it. You know, well, the, the other thing is I said, well, why don't we bring the heated returns in? If I got the two covers on opposite sides, I'll bring the heated returns over there. So now I just took a big chunk of the plumbing and it all just visually vanished, right? The only thing yeah. left was just the, the jets up above the bench. And uh, then we started doing strip lighting in some of them. And so we built a, a, a couple before we took it out. And then we, we started introducing that into some drawings and as I would meet with certain architects and uh, some of them were a little more uh, more stringent on their requirements about visual stuff and I I love that you know especially when I've got solutions for them you know so I'm meeting with an architect and they're saying yeah you know I really hate seeing all those covers I'm like oh I'm glad to hear that because I got (laughs) I got a solution for you how about this and uh, from there, it kind of took off because guys like you were adopting that into, into you know, drawings and plans and construction. And they're not easy to build, but they're not. they're not impossible either. And it's a really cool look. So now I'm starting to see the detail, you know, hitting other places. And in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, we charge uh, a couple thousand dollars for it because it's a pain. The steel guys hate it. The Shot Creek guys hate it. The plumbers have to be really, I mean, it, it, it's, it's really difficult to implement. And, you know, I don't think we make any money on it uh, based on the additional expense. Uh, but it creates a real architectural element. We do a lot of all-tile spas, and just the architectural um, complexity that it adds um, really gives a refinement to an all-tile vessel. Um, you know, uh, if we're working with a new architect and they haven't done it, you know, most of the time they're real engaged at the beginning, and then they come see the end result, and when they come out and they actually see it, because they can't even always conceptualize it when they actually see it and they see, you know, an entire floor of the spa with no visual obstructions at all. 
um, especially in an all-tile vessel, it's like, oh my gosh, that's where is it? It, it creates the mystery and the, the magic that I think uh, just really adds to the overall refinement of, of the design. And, and the architects really, they really like the detail and, and then that becomes a part of their, you know, their future plan sets. Yeah. Yeah, I think it also makes a spa look bigger because the benches don't look like they're these really heavy, squatty masses sitting in there. Now, you know, they look like they're kind of cantilevered over like a, like a nice park bench sort mm -hmm. of thing. The floor is bigger. The floor is expanding out beyond the, you know, the confines of the, the footwell walls. And so it, it really is bigger and your toes have a place to go now. Um, so yeah, I think visually it looks great. So then we started doing it with not just spas, you know, mm -hmm. after the first couple were spas, but then we started, uh, because I've always been a big fan of having a lot of harder nineties in my pools anyway, you know, some pools deserve radiuses, Radius, some yeah. pools deserve big radiuses, but some pools, especially a lot of our contemporary projects that you and I work on, they want, you know, harder, sharper nineties, the, the vessels, you know, look, look bigger and that gave us opportunities because we had places where we had benches coming down to floors at basically 90s. And once you had that detail, it was like, well, why don't, you know, instead of the you know, drain being out in the middle of the deep end, why don't we just tuck it into a toe kick down here at, at you know, below the bench or below the steps or something. And so we started hiding them and we got to the point where we did a, a project in, um, in Saudi Arabia, an indoor pool. And the architect loved the concept so much that we did the entire pool with a mm -hmm. toe kick all the way around and illuminated it. So now we've got this, this mm. idea that there's just this glow of light reaching out across the floor as the floor goes from level, you know, down the transition down to the deep end and that, that light bar just sort of glows out and there's no source of lights in the pool at all because it's and really all you need to do is highlight the floor sure. and the pool is safe you can see everything in there the light starts bouncing around and it's a really cool effect so um touched a little bit about vanishing edge um uh let's talk a little bit about acoustics um and uh, you know, utilizing water, you know, that, that really comes into play, I guess, um, in, in traditional pools, if you have deck jets and laminars and things like that. Uh, but um, where I see it coming in a lot more is, um, you know, like a, we're looking at a job that's up against a, a, a heavily used roadway. Uh, and in the morning, in the evening, when traffic comes, um, it's very loud. And so, uh, it's a traditional pool now. It's only a couple years old, but the client doesn't like the sound, and so we're uh, we're looking to modify it. We're going to raise the pool up, make it a perimeter overflow, um, so that we can get some sort of a um, audible um, tone out of the water to help drown out some of the traffic. Mm -hmm. uh, but that starts to get a little bit dis uh, a, a, a little bit tricky too, um, because you got to worry about water splashing out and all of that. So, what have you learned over the years as you've kind of, you know, designed multiple of these? <clears throat> what are some of the, the the things to look for? What are the things to stay away from? And what are some of the limitations? Yeah, well, I've definitely seen both extremes. You know, where we needed things to be absolutely silent, <laughs> and things where we were trying to generate noise. In fact, I. I remember one project up in Beverly Hills where they had a feature in the driveway, like a circular driveway, and the owner actually wanted noise. So part of that architecture actually included this, uh, uh, basically a, an acoustic chamber that water fell into to create more noise. Mm. And it was a stainless steel box. And the intent was that the sound actually was generated to kind of bounce out. We weren't really trying to mask anything there. It's just that every other water feature on the property, and there was like six other ones, um, they were all quiet. And he wanted something that he could actually go out and hear. You know, and, and this was more of an open space. Everything else was more like courtyards. And you gotta be really careful because noise can get amplified in, in certain areas. And as things start reflecting off of different areas, it's amazing. The, little tricks that your ears can start Slot playing. gutters. Yeah. <laughs> so usually we're trying to keep things quiet. And to do that, again, speed kills. If you can slow things down, that helps a lot. 
Um, and then air. You know, most people think that the noise is, is really caused by the water. It is many times, but air is your, also your enemy, and mm -hmm. it's your biggest enemy on something like a slot edge because you've got water falling into a gutter. I actually like the sound of the water in a gutter. It's that kind of light babbling brook, and, and it's, it's beautiful to me. But as that water starts falling down into pipes, you know, if you could carry it out horizontally, you know, through a, a horizontal outlet and you keep the air, everything sort of vented, the top half of the pipe full of air, you're not likely going to have any real noise issues. But if you have to drop out vertically, which mm. for architectural reasons Sometimes you have, you have to, to do that, now you got a problem because water is got this nice pleasant sound going down the gutter and then as it falls, it's grabbing air, pushing it down, that air's got to burp back up, it, you get sucking sounds, those sounds carry through the pipes and you know the sound may be at one end of the 50 foot long pool but you hear it over here <laughs> and things happening in the tank and the sound is reverberating all the way back through the pipes and coming mm -hmm. up in the gutter and, and uh, it's, it's a real mess sometimes and at that point by the time you know there's a problem, it's big. The pool's full of water. It's got the finishes tile. are all done. <laughs> the finishes are done. The landscape's done. Everybody's done. And for you to go in and try to fix something is a very costly thing. And so the solutions become very difficult at that point. So we do spend a lot of time thinking about the acoustic issues early on in the design and how are we going to address that? Are we adding snorkels? Are we you know, can we come out horizontally? Well, we could do that on this part of the pool, but this part of the pool's got a different wall detail and the, the elevation drops off. I can't come out horizontal. And, you know, I got a five foot drop with this pipe. I got to put a trap in there. I got to vent the trap. I mean, it, mm -hmm. a lot of different things can go on there. And so we've got solutions and every project I think has a, a unique solution to it. Yeah, and that's, you know, we're playing around a lot with, um, uh, opening up our slot overflow gutters uh, when it's appropriate, um, uh, and and we do a lot of uh, plumbing for Grant Smith from Aqualink. Uh, we do his mechanical systems as well, and even in our slot channels, uh, we're starting to play around with trap details. Uh, mm -hmm. And and yes, it's still a gravity line, but if we can keep it flooded, like you've got a, a P-trap detail under your sink, uh, yeah. in your kitchen sink, um, that has that will allow us, depending on where we set that trap detail. If we raise it up just a little bit, we can keep one inch, half an inch even, of water in the bottom of that gutter. And we've solved all of the line drop, the, the noise. Uh, um, the, the first perimeter overflow spa I did, um, it makes a ton of noise uh, because we had vertical drops. We, had, we didn't have any plumbing, but um, just the way it was configured, um, you know, lent itself to a lot of noise. Um, and even now, uh, even with this trap detail, we will still go in and, and detail out that gutter. Uh, mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many gutters I've seen, um, you know, remodels or whatever, that the gutter is all, it's, it's rough, it's not smooth. We go in and we float that perfectly smooth. You know, we're not necessarily always putting tile on there or anything like that, but um, you've got to get that water moving smoothly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... Um, you know, again, um, none of it is very difficult. Yeah, it adds a little bit of expense, uh, but you just have to be pre-thinking through yeah, some of these things. requires and some planning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, we, and even like on that, on the trap detail, because you have to vent the trap, otherwise right. the siphon just breaks it, right? And so then the question is, well, where do you, where do you vent that? And is there noise there? You know, if you've got a one-inch vent line coming off the top of your trap, and the only place to bring it is right back into the gutter where you were trying to eliminate the noise, then, you know, right you may have a different noise issue. Now, smaller pipe is probably going to have smaller noise than the three or four inch outlet that you have, but we do have little, uh, you know, noise filters that we can put on there, basically little threaded things you can screw in there. And if you could plan ahead of time, you could create a place to put that so that the sound isn't even coming out of there, although the air can come in. So... Again, it's just planning and, and details. Yeah, and along that note, you know, oftentimes we've got to, you've got to put the airline for the spa jet somewhere, and that makes noise. Uh, and so we've done that a little bit. You know, get your get your airlines terminated out to wherever your spa jets or into a planner. Um, they're not nearly as loud as your your pickup for your spa air jets, um, but uh, so yeah, just getting creative with that. Um, 
So uh, one of the things that, that we're dealing on with the project right now is the architect um, created, uh, they wanted a very um, chiseled face stone uh, on a 12 foot tall infinity edge for a pool. And um, the, uh, we talked about it quite a bit um, early in the design phase uh, that they were going to get water projecting off of it. And, and sure enough, you know, we have a, a, only a 12 inch wide gutter, mm. uh, but the water is, is uh, it, it's not, it's not flowing off into the planter, uh, but there's definitely enough constant moisture out there. Um, and uh, they've gotten to the point the client has the wherewithal to redesign it and, and the basin is being redesigned to be wider um, and they're going to hide it with, with some of the stone detail and everything. It's going to work, um, you know, but just, uh, just starting to think about those kind of elements, um, you know, you don't, uh, at some point, you know, that's an 11 foot tall wall, 11, 12 feet tall. We canted the wall to try and keep some of the water on there, but there mm -hmm. are there are definitely some things that you really want to bring either a hydraulic expert in or somebody that is familiar with all of this to, uh, you know, w we all learn by mistakes, uh, and I think that's one of the things that I love about the Society of Watershape Designers is that we're all a brotherhood, and I can call somebody from you know Minnesota or I can call somebody from Arizona, different places in the country if if we're working on a project. It's it's um, if it's something that I haven't done, there's always somebody within our ranks that has done it. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us today, and I'm sure we'll get you back. Tell us a little bit about the um, the hydraulics courses that you teach, because we just kind of did an overview right here, um, you know. But but really, you teach uh, a couple of multi-day courses that really get into all of the math and, and how do you size the size of a gutter and, and all of that stuff. So talk to us a little bit about uh, you know the hydraulic classes that you teach and where they're available. Yeah, well the first one is called Basic Fluid Engineering and we're actually doing that one in, um, in Canada, Toronto, um, in uh, October I believe, maybe beginning of I October. I think so, yeah, October 2019. Um, uh, Master Pools Guild is hosting the meeting but you don't have to be a member of Master Pools. Um, they're, uh, it's a great team over there, so they're opening it up to other you know, people that want to come in and, and take the class. And what you get is actually a flash drive, and, and mm -hmm. I ask that everyone brings their, their laptop, and so you load the flash drive in, and there's worksheets, there's some other folders with useful information about ozone and stuff that we will talk about. But primarily, the, the value of that course, I think, what students have told me, is, is what's on the flash drive, because there's worksheets and I sort of describe it like the Swiss Army knife of, of hydraulic design. It's a series of sheets each sort of set up to calculate a specific thing. Pipe sizing is a really easy one. Plug in a flow rate and it tells you what pipe size to mm -hmm. use, what the velocity is and the head loss for a given length of pipe and you can actually type, you know, put in a, the length of pipe there. Um, there's just, some of the sheets are just uh, aren't things that you actually plug numbers into. It's just, just data, you know, on, on pipes and how, how much can you bend the pipe and how much does it weigh and how much does it weigh with water in it. And if, if it weighs that much, what's the spacing of the supports? If I'm going to hang, you know, trapezes from my ceiling and I've got uh, two inch lines and four inch lines, what, you know, what spacing will accommodate both of those? So a lot of different things that you can just pull out of uh, just sheets that I've built over the years for my own company. And that's really where it started from is when I, when I run into a problem in the off, at the office, I usually work it out the first time by hand. Mm -hmm. You know, like, yeah, here's, here's how we do this. And I, you know, help, help my team out. Then the same problem inevitably comes up some other point in time and I'd say, you know what, if, if it's going to happen it twice, twice, it's going to be three or four times, I might as well make a sheet that anyone in the company can just plug a number into and, and get, get the answers that they're looking for. And so that's, that's what really generated all these different worksheets. And there's so much there that we really can't get through it in, in a two-day class. So, or two. Yeah, and so we went from the basic fluid engineering, we ended up adding a, another two-day advanced fluid engineering course. And in the advanced one, uh, we've really sort of pushed all the gravity flow 
and water and transit stuff over there. Weirs, lazy rivers, uh, vanishing edges, slot edges, how to calculate out, you know, the size basin and spacing. size. Yeah, basin sizing. Search all tanks. of that stuff was all pushed to the second session. And and I would never consider teaching them back to back because I think it's important that you sort of build your foundation in the first one, give yourself some time and some excedrin to get over that and then come back, you know, months later or a year or two later when when the when your work product has maybe elevated to the point where you need slide edge stuff and vanishing edge because a lot of the builders that come in have, you know, that's that's a goal of theirs someday. Right now they're just happy to learn how to do a regular pool. Sure. With with the right math. Once they get into that, then it's like, hey, I got my first slot edge. What do I do? Get into class. <laughs> we'll mm-hmm. figure it out together. And so in the class, we give you these fake projects and you actually fill in the blanks. You have a full sheet of paper like I do in the office, a schematic diagram, a plan view, and, and we actually calculate out total dynamic head. And so you're note, noting your drawing and you're doing the math on the, in the worksheet and going back to your drawing and you, you do the math yourself. So hopefully when you get back to the office, you still got your flash drive, you've actually done it at least once in the classroom and you, you know how to use all those tools. And so I get builders all the time, I bump into at these shows, and they go, ah, I'm still using your worksheet from you know, six years ago, it's great. You know? And so I'm happy to hear that people are still finding value. Yeah, in I mean, I, I would say uh, when I'm designing and even uh, bidding jobs, it's, there's rarely a day that I don't at least open it uh, and, and look at, okay, what size pipe do I need here? And, and you know, I'm a simpleton. I can't keep numbers in my head. So I'm, I'm always opening it up and going, okay, I know I need 86 gallons per minute to run this feature. Uh, what size pipe is that again? Uh, you know, and, and I can open it and it's a two second calculation. You know, I just plug it in. And so, um, I mean, even to this day, uh, 10 years later after the very first class that we had, um, I still utilize those worksheets every single day in my office. Mm-hmm. So great. All right. Well, thank you very much, and uh, we look forward to taking your class. All right. Thank Thanks, you, Dave. Thanks for listening to the Ask Masters podcast, and don't forget to check out our Facebook page each week on Tuesdays for new episodes of the show. I also want to encourage you to stop by the Ask the Masters Facebook page and invite other like-minded individuals to join us there as well. Feel free to jump into the conversations and even post your own questions. We want to create a community which fosters learning and discovery for the betterment of us all. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please be sure to subscribe and feel free to share.